Anybody show up today at 8.30? Just curious. Way to go. Um, we're looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25 today. Uh, it's a really long passage of scripture, and so uh, instead of reading for literally eight minutes, because I timed it, um, I decided to shorten it a little bit. So there are bits and pieces of the story that, uh, that we're not going to get. If you'd like to get the, if you'd like to fill the details in, feel free to go back and, and read the story in its entirety uh, on your own time. But we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 25, the first 39 verses. So give ear now. This is God's word. David rose and went down to the wilderness. And there was a man in Carmel who was very rich. His name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. She was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. David sent ten men, saying, Go to Nabal and greet him in my name, saying, Peace be to you. I hear that you have shearers. Your shepherds have been with us, and they miss nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Your young men will confirm this. Therefore, give us your favor, for it is a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David's men went, but Nabal answered, Who is David? Many servants these days are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and give it to men who come from I don't know where? When David heard, he said, Every man strap on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. Four hundred men went with David. But one of the young men told Abigail, David sent men to greet our master, and he railed at them. The men were very good to us, and we didn't miss anything when, they, when we were with them. Now consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail quickly took loaves, wine, sheep, grain, raisins, and fig cakes, and laid them on donkeys. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. Now David had said, This fellow has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she fell on her face at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, but I, your servant, didn't see your young men whom you sent. Now then, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now let this present that your servant has brought be given to the men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief 
or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not be left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David said to her, Go in peace to your house. I have obeyed your voice and granted your petition. Nabal was drunk, holding a feast in his house. So Abigail told him nothing until the morning when the wine had left him. When she told him, his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Bless the Lord, who has avenged the insult of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal, On his own head. This is God's word. This story calls to mind so much. There is so much that that, that comes out of this story. The thing that jumps off the page at me as I've thought through how this applies to our lives today really is to ask the question is there a difference in terms of who you are when you are in public? versus when you're in private? That's a question that we want to wrestle with today. Are you different when you're with others versus when you're by yourself? Do you respond differently when you know that you can get away with something versus when you know people are watching or you know that you're going to be caught? We use the term integrity to describe people who are the same in both situations. Right? Their lives are integrated. You know, that's where integrity comes from. Their lives are integrated, so you are the same person. There's no disintegration, you know, that you are two different people or even more than just two, but you're different people depending on, on uh, where you are. It's interesting because we want, when we think about leadership especially, we want our leaders to have integrity, or at least we, we did at one time. I feel like some, some, so much of it we've given up on that. But we think about we want our leaders, especially in the city, to have integrity because we know it's, it's important to be able to trust them, right? We know how much goes on that never, ever becomes public. We know there are decisions that are made. There are bills that get signed. There are laws that are enacted. There's all kinds of judgments that are made by our leaders. And if they don't have integrity, then we're really just sort of at a loss for what's going to happen. We're voting people into office. We have leaders that – and we, we just – we can't predict – I mean, unless we can chase down, you know, what it is that's truly motivating them or who it is that's truly motivating them, then we can have some sort of prediction. But even though oftentimes the argument is made that someone's personal life has no bearing on how they lead, right, or who they are in public, I think we all know in our hearts that it makes a difference. It really does. And so today, David's integrity is being tested. Okay, he has been given the promise. In the last chapter, the reigning king himself, Saul, came to David and finally admitted that David would be the next king. In this story, 
in this chapter, we're going to find out how will David rule. This is, in a sense, David's first test of how is he going to use the power and the authority that he has. He showed incredible respect and grace to Saul, to the king, sort of as he looked up the chain, right, at Saul. He treated Saul with great respect and incredible grace. We saw that last week in chapter 24. The question, though, is that how is he going to treat people who fall under his authority? Right, looking up, he does well. How is he going to do with the folks that end up underneath his authority? And as we see David's response, we're going to get another look into our own hearts. Right? It's interesting, as we follow David along this path and understand what he does and why he does it, we're going to find out what's in us. You know, and, and do we have integrity in terms of how we relate to other people? We're going to see this in three points. If you want to take notes, you can do it on page 7 there. First, we're going to see how David stumbles when no one is looking. Okay, how David stumbles when no one is looking. Second, we're going to see how Abigail's wisdom saves the king. And then third, we're going to see how God intervenes to save lives. Okay? And so first, how David stumbles when no one's looking. And again, it's interesting because this is the place where David finally has authority. Saul has affirmed him, and he's finally now in a position where he can exercise authority. Up to this point in the narrative, Saul's been running, or David's been running away. He's been being chased by Saul, but now he's got the upper hand here. Okay? This is almost like the next stage in his maturing process. We've watched how God has been maturing David from the time that he anointed him back in chapter 16. We see step by step, David is learning the lessons that he's going to need to know in order to rule well and to be a king after God's own heart. And so here, David has been granted this mantle of authority. Saul confessed it. But how will he use it? We see that in verses 5 through 8, things are going pretty well. In David's report to Nabal, David has been protecting Nabal's shepherds and his flocks. Okay? He's been protecting them probably from predatory animals or from robbers that would come and steal. Okay? And so in a sense, he's using his power. He's using the 400 men. He's got this army around him now, and he's using that to actually protect people in the land. I mean, that's what a king should be doing, right? The king serves the people. And so, but having done this, now that sort of the, the grazing season is over and they're, they're going to begin to shear the sheep, David then sends uh, his men in a culturally appropriate way so that they might participate in the fruits of their labor. Okay? We've protected you, we've provided for you, and now we'd like to share in the bounty of your feast. You know, that's what he's doing. That's verses 5 to 8. Well, unfortunately, Nabal rebuffs David or rebuffs his men in verses 9 through 11. And Nabal's refusal, it's, it's a rejection, but it's also an awful insult. Okay? This is a horrible insult. He actually calls David a runaway slave in verse 10. He says, who is David? And he's not asking. He knows who David is. Okay? He knows who David is. He says, many servants these days are breaking away from their masters. You know, basically, he's saying, David, you're just a runaway slave that is trying to, I guess, eke out a living. I mean, there's no respect here for David. But it's even worse than that. Because Nabal knows who David is, who's the master that David's escaping from? It's Saul. It's Saul. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but I think the fact that this chapter is in where it is in the narrative I think what we see here 
is that Nabal is a Saul supporter. Okay, Nabal is someone that thinks that Saul ought to be on the throne and not David. Okay, and so you kind of have like a political preference here. Um, Nabal has no desire to see David rise up, has no desire to see David prosper, thinks that David is nothing more than just a runaway slave who probably needs to bow the knee to Saul, and his perception of David is the same as Saul's perception has been, that David is just sitting around as a vagabond waiting for the chance to, to murder the king. Okay, and so, boy, I mean, this would be like, huh, what would this be like? Um, you know, when President Obama was, was elected and hadn't been inaugurated, this would be like going up to President Obama and saying, you know, you're just, <laughs> you're just a loser who, uh, you know, who, who's looking to serve himself on the throne, right? I mean, and so the insult here, it's more than just you're insignificant and worthless, David. It's, David, you are fundamentally evil like you are misguided you need to you need to repent and get back under Saul's leadership or I would agree with Saul's spear that that, that he should have pinned you to the ground and killed you so I mean that's the nature of what Nabal's doing okay and then the question becomes how is David going to respond okay how will David respond and unfortunately David responds by becoming like Saul he actually becomes like Saul. His response is brief and clear. Verse 13. <laughs> Every man strap on his sword. Verse 22 tells us that David's intention is to go in to Nabal's property and, 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 and murder every male that he has. I mean, this is, this is Saul all over again. Right? We've seen Saul do this. When Saul gets mad, he grabs his spear and he throws it at somebody. When he finds David is lurking around, he takes 3,000 men you know, to find David and goes hunting to kill. David, all of a sudden, is now walking in Saul's sandals. One author, Ralph Davis, said this. He said that, uh, that David was turning Nabal's Carmel, the city where Nabal was in, into Nob. You know, the city of the priests that Saul put to the sword. And it's interesting because there's such a huge contrast here between David in chapter 25 and David in chapter 24. Again, Ralph Davis said in chapter 24, David is the restrainer. He will not harm Saul himself or permit his men to do so. But in chapter 25, David is the one who needs to be restrained. He's bent on spilling Nabal's blood and that of his men because of Nabal's insult. He refuses to harm the anointed king, but he's most willing to liquidate a private Israelite. I think as we understand that this is what's unfolding, I mean, we ask ourselves, I mean, it is amazing how anger can blind us, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. Where has anger caused you to react in ways that make you look like Saul? I mean, where is it where you just snap and you're not thinking anymore? I mean, all of a sudden you're doing things that you just never, ever thought you would. I mean, I've been catching myself. You know, you, you study this stuff and you preach on it. It's, I've been catching myself. The level of anger that I, get, that I rise to at certain times, it's just, it's, it's frightening to me. And I think, why are you so angry? But this is what happens. Our anger blinds us. And what we're seeing here, you know, and this is more of, 
the message of the chapter is that personal vengeance is not the king's job. Okay? The king's job is to lead and defend Israel, right? To lead and defend the people of Israel, not to use his power for personal gain. Okay, and that's been sort of the fall of Saul. And now we find that David's doing the same thing. He's got this army around him, and David thinks, insult me? Really? I'll show you. And we see that David is falling into the same trap. It's the, he's following the same path. You know, we talk about this path that leads down this way. And it's interesting because Saul is all the way down that path, right? And here we see David following after him. You know, and it's interesting because this is probably where Saul started. You know, I mean, you think about it. You know, Saul started with, again, it's simple decisions that we make that set a precedent, that set a pattern. And then pretty soon we're enslaved. We're enslaved. Verse 31 talks about the sins that David committed. The very last phrase, my Lord taking vengeance himself. That's what we're aiming at here. It is not, personal vengeance is not the right of the king at least not the one who follows after God's own heart. And so not only does David become like Saul, but David is heading down a road that is going to ruin his kingdom. Okay, this isn't just going to create a black mark on David's moral record. <laughs> it will do that. But far more than that, it's more than just personal vengeance. Verse 33 also talks about, um, he says, Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt. From blood guilt. This was a term, it's used in scripture that talks about the guilty shedding of blood. And I mean, there's so much, to, there's, there's lots of places you can look this up. In 2 Kings chapter 24, it says essentially there that Israel was ultimately removed from the promised land because of blood guiltiness. The leadership of Israel polluted the kingdom of Israel with its own. I mean, the kings of Israel brought their own pollution through their own personal sin of blood guiltiness. And it infected the nation to the point that the nation was removed. They were kicked out of the promised land and they were judged completely. They were sent into exile. Another author, Peter Lightheart, said, It's tough to keep the loyalty of troops if the road to the throne is paved with blood. And he said, in addition... David wouldn't rule well if he's burdened by a bad conscience. And this is exactly what happens to David later on in his life with Bathsheba. He commits and he ends up being blood guilty because he kills her husband, Uriah. And then he spends the rest of his life paralyzed by his guilt. Okay, so this isn't just a particular, you know, again, this isn't just David committing some sin. This is going to infect his entire rulership, his entire kingship, which will lead the whole nation of Israel um, astray. I mean, you could also say that what's going on here is as David takes up his sword, right, and, and commands his men to do the same thing, to take personal vengeance is actually inviting David to then live by the sword, now, that's the idea here, that if David does this, he is going to commit himself to living by the sword. And we know the rest of Scripture teaches if you live by the sword, you're ultimately going to die by the sword. And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. 
I mean, do you want to live by the sword? Because this is what happens when you take revenge on people, when you, you know, when you fuel your vengeance against other people, when you respond in ways that are inappropriate, when you lash out, when you return evil for evil toward people, what you're doing is you are strapping on your sword. I mean, that's what you need to understand. When you feel that anger rise up in you, what you need to stop and ask yourself is, do I really want to strap on my sword? Do I really want to commit myself to this kind of life? Because this life won't let me go. If I do this, it's going to be easier the next time, easier the next time, easier the next time. Are you going to kill with your words? Are you going to kill with your heart? Are you going to kill with your actions? Or, Or block someone? Or again, return evil for evil? Or will you stop and listen? And this has huge application for us when we think about our work the environments that we walk in at work, with the relationships that we have, the kind of work that we do, how we treat our customers, how we treat our other employees, how we treat our boss. It also affects our communities, our neighborhoods. How are you going to treat the people around you? Are you going to wish they were gone? Are you going to wish they were dead? Are you going to wish they were moved somewhere else? I mean, those are ways that we strap on our sword. And the alternative is, you know, will you show respect and grace in the city? David was so good before, and yet here we see um, he is he is heading he is headlong, you know, ready to basically become Saul and repeat the entire process that Saul went through. So that's our first point: how David stumbles when no one's looking. And the idea there, what, what I mean there by when no one's looking. I mean, I think that has good application for all of us, right? Because we all have time when we are by ourselves and no one knows. But the idea here for David is that he's in a place where he could do this if he wants and he could get away with it, okay? And so in a sense, there's no one looking over David. There's no one who who can stop David. No one's going to call him to task um, if he does this thing. And so that's why I said this is like David when no one's looking. Um, Well, I mean, I guess we think no one's going to call him to task. But then we run into, uh, run into our second point. We're in our second point. So point one is how David stumbles when no one's looking. Point two is how Abigail's wisdom saves the king. Okay, how Abigail's wisdom saves the king. I mean, there's good news here that even though David can't see it, even though his mind and his eyes have been blinded by his rage, you know, that film, that red film has descended over him and, the only thing he wants to do is, is see blood. Uh, there is someone who's looking out for him. There is someone who is going to make every effort to protect. And so Abigail comes, and Abigail confronts David with courage. She goes through this whole process. The servant comes to her and warns her about what's going to happen. Verse 10, or verse 18, Abigail acts quickly. And, and enacts this whole process. And it's interesting because when she stands before David, she reminds me of Ahimelech, you know, before Saul, right, who stood before the king and stood up to the king. Abigail reminds me of David, actually, in chapter 24. Abigail prostrates herself. She falls on her face before David, or before David, just like David did before Saul. 
Her speech is eloquent and wise. It's theologically rich. It reminds us of David's speech from the last chapter. You know, and you wonder if in some way that was part of what God used to break through that blindness, that blind rage of David. You know, like you wonder if seeing Abigail there, he might have started thinking, wait a minute, I've seen this before, but wait, I was the one bowing down. And then, you know, just to start playing that in his mind, something had to stop him. She's got incredible wisdom. I mean, this is interesting. She knows the limitations of her husband. That's the most positive way to say it. And she works with them. Or maybe she works around them. You know, and it's interesting because in verse 25, Abigail ultimately saves her husband and also insults him. Okay, verse 25. um, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. She says that's even his name, you know. Nabal means fool. And so she says he's even named that. Um, don't regard him. I would say that part of the way that Abigail saved her husband was by insulting him. Okay? I mean, it's interesting because part of a successful appeal to someone, especially someone in a blind rage, okay, is that you have to actually affirm the problem that they see. Okay? David's issue is that Nabal is a fool and deserves judgment. And so Abigail has the wisdom to affirm David's judgment of her husband. You know, and you feel that way too. You've had that experience, haven't you? Where you've been really frustrated and then someone says, look, I know how you feel. And you're like, no, you don't because you're ready to fly. And then they actually say how you feel and you go, oh, <laughs> you do know how I feel. You know, like it causes us to pause, right? When someone affirms the problem that we see, we feel understood, we feel more respected, we feel like there might be hope, and there's at least a reason to keep listening to this person. Okay, and so Abigail, again, by insulting Nabal, um, she's showing that she understands David's perspective, and that's part of what breaks through David's hard-heartedness. Now, this is big, okay? I want to say something that's going to take wisdom to apply, You could hear this the wrong way and go crazy, um, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's important. A wife needs to be her husband's biggest support. Okay? That's not the crazy thing. Everybody understands that. Um, So a wife needs to be her husband's biggest support, but there are times when if a husband is bringing death in our passage or destruction into the family, the wife can get help, okay? I've actually talked to wives before who have thought that they can't ever, ever say anything negative about their husbands because it's not respecting him in some way or because of an understanding of submission that they have that doesn't include ever being able to speak the truth about their husband, especially in the face of danger to the family or to, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And so I think Abigail here, is an example of someone who recognized that if she didn't do this, I mean, Nabal would have died, okay? And so, again, it takes wisdom. It takes community to know exactly how to apply this. But, wives, you need to understand that whatever your views are in terms of your relationship to your husband, your view should include the opportunity to be able to speak about the weaknesses, the problems, that your husband has, if it means that you're getting help, okay? Um, And I just, I think 
what Abigail does here is enough to justify saying that. And so, um, again, you want to be careful. This isn't licensed to badmouth your husband um, or, or to gossip about him. But in an effort to stem the tide of destruction in a family, you know, this can be an appropriate, this can be a piece of an appropriate response. So, so Abigail confronts David with courage, and then she calms David's rage. It's interesting. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath. I remember reading that verse uh, when I was in college, and I was selling door-to-door. Okay, I'd knock on people's doors and try to sell them a particular product. And I remember when I found this verse, it made such a huge difference. Because there were people, I mean, I don't understand this at all, but people would open the door and they'd get mad at me just for standing there and offering them something that I thought was a great deal. Couldn't figure it out. There were people that were really upset with me that I would stand there and, in their opinion, waste their time. <clears throat> and so they would lash out at me with, ver- with words, usually just words. I only had a gun pulled on me once. Um, but, but most of the time it was words that were really sort of harsh and angry um, and, and accusatory, blah, blah, blah. When I read this verse, I thought, well, I need to try this. And so, you know, when this just had a huge impact because people, when they would have a negative response toward me or, or get hostile with me, I would just say something like, gosh, you know what? I, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't come to bother you. I'm part of, a, of an organization that's doing a promotion in the area. And if you're not interested, look, it's no problem. I'll just I'll, I'll keep going. No problem. And the softening effect that that kind of a response has is just amazing. And it's right out of the Bible. A soft answer turns away wrath. If you respond to people's wrath and anger with gentleness, with humility, where you are taking on whatever guilt you can, you know, you can affirm, when you, when you can affirm their perspective, um, it does a huge amount to diffuse anger, to make people soft, and it actually can build bridges. And it does here. It does here with Abigail and David. So she calms his rage. Um, look at verse 24. She says, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Abigail says, Blame me for everything that's gone on. That's interesting. She takes on the guilt because, now why does she do this? Because she's the one who's going to pay the price. Okay, because what is with her? all these donkeys laden with all kinds of food, food enough to feed David's 400 and probably the 600, probably all 600 of them. And so because she is the one paying the price and she knows that she's brought what he wants, she says, blame me. Okay, don't think about my husband, disregard him, don't become like him, don't even worry about that. That's like, don't answer a fool according to his folly lest you be like him. She's saying, look, don't do this other stuff, don't worry about him. Blame me for anything. And oh, by the way, here's... (laughs) Here's this gift. This is what you need. This is what you were looking for. I didn't know. I didn't know that my husband did this. I I wasn't there when he did it. And so look, so take these things. She gives them the food in verse 27. And then verse 28, she's the one asking for forgiveness. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. And so she calms his rage by taking the blame, by making it right, by providing restitution and asking for forgiveness. I mean, this, this, is, this is powerful. And then she also affirms God's promises in all of this. She spends four verses from verses 28 to 31 reminding David of God's promises and all the things that God has promised to David. She's almost like Jonathan 
before. You know, Jonathan springs up in David's life at key moments where God knows David's about to go through something. And so David or Jonathan shows up to give him that, that reminder that God is with you. God is with you. He's going to be with you. That's given Jonathan the strength to proceed wisely. It's given David the strength to proceed wisely. And here Abigail does the same thing. And it's interesting. I mean, this just shows the wisdom, the brilliance of Abigail. Verse 29, and the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from a sling. What's that an allusion to? Yeah, Goliath. So she's reminding David, gosh, don't you remember? You don't need to fight for personal vengeance. You don't need to fight with the sword. Remember, you didn't, you purposely didn't take Saul's sword because that's not you. You don't fight according to the strength of arms, according to the strength of human, the way humans fight. You went with a sling and felled the giant. David, what are you doing with the sword strapped on? God will take care of you. He has taken care of you in ways greater than this. And so she affirms God's promises. And then she saves her household and the king. I mean, you catch that, right? She doesn't just save her household, but she saves the king himself. Because David listens to her. David listens to her. He says, blessed be the Lord who sent you. In verse 32. You know, and this is the difference between David and Nabal. Right? In verse 17, the servant says, he's such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Right? He's saying, look, you know, as well as I do, Abigail, there's no talking to him. Right? He doesn't listen. And yet David does. I mean, this also is what differentiates David from Saul. And so this is amazing because David, uh, he listens here to Abigail. We've seen him listen to Jonathan. David has his ears and his heart tuned to the words of God. Okay? In a blind rage, he can hear his shepherd's voice, and he responds. I feel like there are things in my own, in my marriage with Lainey, where there are times when I don't care how mad I am, if she says certain things, I know I have to stop. And I don't care how proud I am. I don't care how angry I am. I've got to stop and say, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm in a place I shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? It's like when I know that she's saying, look, this isn't, or I mean, actually for, with us, it's when she bottles up and leaves because she doesn't like to stand toe-to-toe and argue. And so she'll just, she'll bottle up and walk away, you know, and then that makes me angry because I want to fight, you know, because I want to, I want to be right. I want to show her I'm right. I want to whatever. And, and when she does that, I realize, oh, my gosh, like I have just ended the conversation. And when that happens, I have to stop. Like, I, you know, it's, it's like it's this thing in my you, – you, you have one of these things? It's the alarm that goes off. And it's like, okay, it doesn't matter what we were talking about. We're now in a place where we can't – there's no hope for us to be reconciled if this stays like it is. And the only way that this gets fixed is if I humble myself – and own it, own whatever part of this I've played and, and go back and, and apologize. And we all need to have something in our lives where we're tuned into the word of God, where we're tuned in so that when we hear the words of scripture, when we hear a friend remind us of scripture, that's got to stop us in our tracks. 
Okay, I mean, we talked about this. I don't know if it was last week or if it was the week before, where the worst thing, the only really um, unsolvable problem is someone who's not willing to listen. Everything else can be fixed if you listen. But if you don't, there's nothing that can fix. And so David listens. He listens. He's also, he's willing to confess his own sins. He acknowledges the wrong that he was about to commit. He submits to Abigail, right? He's confronted and he backs down. This is a woman back then in that culture. This is incredibly countercultural. And yet Abigail has the courage to stand up and David listens. And it was doubly hard because I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 22, when David is on his way down, what he's about to do, he takes a vow. Okay? So, I mean, just shows you the, the measure. It's almost like when you get ready to go into battle, you know, they all do their battle cry. You know, they're just yelling, like, oh, you know, as they go in. I always wondered why they do that. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a rallying cry, but I think it's actually, because I know when I hurt myself really bad, if I yell, it doesn't hurt so bad. And I realize the people, the reason why people do these rallying cries is because they're trying to get their adrenaline to flow so that they can't think about anything but what they're about to do. You know, in that, that yell, that cry, that shout, um, actually, I think, diminishes the pain that you feel. You get into that mode. And I guess I'm saying this because that's the mode that David was in. He took an oath. He promised all 600 of his men, right, that, that we're going down and we're going to kill them all. You know, this was like his shout, you know, and, and then he comes. But even, even then, like it was, he still repented. You know, it was like he was that far down the road and still he was able to listen. You know, his conscience, we talked about his conscience last week. He trained his conscience so that it would listen, that it would listen as far down the road as he got. He was still able to listen and come back. One author said this, through Abigail, God saves David from a danger different from that in the cave with Saul, but nonetheless great. This danger consists in the possibility that David might take matters into his own hand and thus make himself master of his fate instead of being guided by the Lord. You know, and then it's the issue of, well, who's going to run your life? Like, who do you have? Are you going to let the Lord lead and guide you or are you going to grab and take vengeance for yourself when you do that when you strap on your sword what you're saying is god i don't need you i will do this on my own here's a great quote from uh, jan Fokelman. he said this david doesn't exercise restraint in this passage but he learns it he learns the proverbs This is before Proverbs were written, but it's interesting here. He says, which introduces every young person to the fool and to lady wisdom. The fool teaches one self-control and reliance on God. If you're going to deal with the fool, you need self-control, reliance on God. Lady wisdom helps you not to be guilty of blood guilt and not to gain victory by your own hand. That's good. You know, God puts this event in David's life. He brings this about so that David would learn not to seek vengeance. That vengeance does not belong to the king. 
Abigail is telling him, look, you are out here in the wilderness to find out what God is doing in, in Israel and who you are before God. And I think that's for all of us. You know, we just sang mercy in the wilderness. We're all the, the wilderness of this life, right? We all live in this dichotomy between what we love life to be and what life really is. You know, there's times where life is great and wonderful, but then there's times where we really sense that we're living in the desert. And if that's where you are, God has you there to teach you two things, what God is doing in the world and who you are before him. And so Abigail saves the king. This brings us to our last point. And this is how God intervenes to save lives. Because that's what he does. And it's interesting. We see there's, there's sort of two things under here. Um, we see that God intervenes through people. Okay? It's so clear. God used Abigail. We almost say God was Abigail. <laughs> Or Abigail was God, not, not, not in the literal sense. Verse 26, Abigail says to David, the Lord has restrained you. But verse 32, David says, blessed be the Lord who sent you. And blessed be you, verse 33, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself. So is this God who saves David or is it Abigail? It's both. Right? God sent Abigail to work for him. She is an image of God. This is remarkable. She's decisive and resourceful. She's perceptive in circumstances, courageous in danger, engaging in demeanor. She's theological, rational, convincing in argument, shrewd in suggestion. One other said, clearly she is the Lord's stop sign, mercifully placed in David's path. And this just reminds us that God works through people. Okay? He works through you. He calls all of us to image him to each other. How does God use you? How is God using you and in the lives of other people? I mean, God wants to use each and every one of you to bring more of his kingdom into our city, to spread his love, his grace, to be courageous, to stand up when you need to and confront somebody, to affirm the promises, to bring reminders of God and his grace to other folks. And it's interesting because I think when David perceives that it's not just Abigail, but it's God who's speaking, everything changes for him. I mean, isn't that true for you? When you sort of realize, it's almost like when God peels back the blinders and you think, oh, (laughs) this is God working in my life. When you have that realization, there's power there, isn't there? Because you, you just you you sort of let go and say, "Okay, God, wait, wait, what do you want from me here?" And that's what we need to get. That's what we need to get. And so, God uses people to be His presence in our lives. But the minute you say that, the minute I thought about that this week as I was getting ready for this, I realized there's also times though when God can't use people. Okay, sometimes God has to come and actually intervene himself. There's this amazing passage in Isaiah chapter 63. Um, It says, my year of redemption came. Okay, this is God speaking. My year of redemption has come, and I looked, but there was no one to help. Okay, so God is saying, 
the time of redemption is now, but I looked around and I couldn't use anybody. There was no one to help. I was appalled because there was no one to uphold. So I came down and brought salvation. I mean that. There are times when God has to come and do it himself. When God's intervention can't be done by anybody else. And when we recognize that, then Abigail shows us how God does this, how God does intervene through Jesus. Okay, Abigail is wonderful. She's inspiring. But when you see how she shows us Jesus, it's going to move you. It's going to move you. Some of you are probably already anticipating. In verse 23, Abigail's laying in the dirt before David's feet, humiliating herself and asking for forgiveness. Jesus also subjected himself to humiliation. The torture, the mocking, the insults, the scourging, the beatings, the crucifixion, being hung naked in public. And in the midst of that, he was asking for forgiveness. Not for himself, but for you. Abigail shows us that. In verse 24, Abigail says, blame me because she's the one who pays for it. She takes the blame on herself. She saw her husband's sin and takes the blame and gives David this gift of food. Well, Jesus saw our sin. And he went to the cross and said to God the Father, blame me. Blame me so that you could go free. I mean, Abigail saved Nabal and David, but Jesus comes to save you. One great song, um, it's, it's, uh, it's called Arise. And one of, the, one of the stanzas in it says, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour out effectual prayers, and they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. That's Jesus. And that's good news, brothers and sisters. If you don't believe in him yet, what are you waiting for? I mean, that he would do this for you. That he would do what Abigail did and far worse so that we might have forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, would you please draw us close to yourself? Thank you so much for Abigail. Thank you for the way that she took courage to stand before the the soon-to-be king and with all boldness stood up to him and saved the nation of Israel from a second ruler like Saul. But then thank you so much for the greater Abigail that we have come to know and love. Jesus, who hung himself on a cross so that we might be forgiven so that we might go free. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to let go of our anger and our vengeance and trust you. Trust you in your time 
And if there are folks here, Father, who don't yet believe in you, would you draw them to yourself and help them today to put their faith in Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen.